Hello, clinicians, and, and hello, my peers. We are back for yet another episode of the Becoming Healers podcast. I'm so thankful that you've taken a moment to tune in and to get your weekly fix of the podcast. And I'm so sorry we abruptly announced a pause. It was an important pause because we were taking time to go back and reflect on how we can strengthen the safety net from a support system perspective in these episodes. We've taken a tough conversational journey, unpacking really hard things and Potentially for many of you coming into very real realizations of where the state of your mental health is and what those contributing factors are. And I don't think we've necessarily echoed very much what the actual strategies or where the actual resources are in terms of how you can engage support. So that's going to be the focus of the next two episodes before we delve deeper into some tougher conversations that we definitely need to have. I'm particularly excited about this conversation because we get to talk about something tough, but then find a way to really challenge ourselves to hold on to the good. Because the title of this conversation today is Normally I'm Not Coping. And we're really also going to be unpacking the path to preserving joy. Today, you're going to be hearing from two incredible guests, one of them, my co-host extraordinaire, Venetia Godan, together with Dr. Samke Ngobo, who you've not met before, but I know she's going to be adding such immense value to you as you listen. Our partner co-host is still around, but she's celebrating some amazing life milestones, and that's why she was unable to join us. That's Dr. Precious Chigura, but she'll be back with us on the airwaves quite shortly. And I just want to send an extra special shout out to everybody who's taken the time to rate this podcast, to like, to share and subscribe. I hope it's serving you to have more people in your community aware about what it looks like to better navigate the challenges of their mental health. And I hope that it's giving you the courage to speak more openly about where you're struggling and that it's enriching your vocabulary for having language for how you feel and why you feel the way you feel. So let's not waste any time. Let's dig into this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us again. I think our audience will notice today that there's one uh, voice missing and that's because Precious is away. She recently got married and she's enjoying time off with her husband at a honeymoon, but we do have an incredibly special guest joining us today. Today, we're joined by Dr. Sam Kelisiwe Ngobo, who's a medical doctor and professional who's taken a leading role in mental health advocacy and is renowned for her efforts and time in terms of trying to get the South African community aware of what these, of what mental health problems exist in our society and just trying to work really hard to make sure the stigma that exists around mental health conditions, um, is, is really erased so that people can start to access the care that they need and that our society is more aware of just how important it is to have mental health care and access good mental health care. Um, so I'm so excited for you all to be able to meet her. And then, of course, we have Venetia, who's been rolling with us since episode one. And I'm excited for us to have an incredible conversation. Today, our topic is normally I'm not coping. And we really hope to take a conversational journey that will help you unpack some of the areas in your professional and personal lives where you're not coping and where some of the social narratives that exist in our workplace make it difficult for you to actually seek the mental health care support that you need. 
This is a bit of an interruption from the normal flow of episodes that we have because we think it's a bit important to strengthen the safety netting in terms of empowering you with the strategies and the resources to ensure that you improve your mental health. So thank you so much, Dr. Ngoba and B, for joining us for this episode. Would you take a moment just to greet the audience? And for Dr. Ngoba, please just take some time to tell us a bit more about who you are and what your journey's been so far in terms of mental health advocacy. Thank you so much for that beautiful, humbling introduction. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 2001. So I've been with this friend of mine who I call Madam J for 20 years now. And it was at a time when mental health issues and the topic of mental health wasn't as robust and embraced as much as it was um, back in the day. As a result, I experienced a lot of stigma related to, you know, from different aspects socially, from a religious aspect, from a cultural perspective, uh, deemed to be demon-possessed from a religious aspect, deemed to be bewitched from a cultural perspective, and deemed to be less than related to uh, socially. And those things as a 14-year-old at the time were very, you know, it made me feel alienated and felt guilty. I usually call stigma the uncommitted sin because you feel responsible for how people perceive you and you feel as if you've done something wrong. So it was quite a difficult journey. Fast forward to me becoming a medical doctor. I can say that my university years were quite eventful. That was the time I was struggling with my insight and acceptance of the diagnosis, largely because also I was seeing patients in the psychiatric departments who were so ill and I couldn't identify with those patients. And little did I realize that what they present with is what I present with when I'm unwell. So it was a journey Mm. of insight and, you know, accepting it because I just really felt like it was a they versus me world, not realizing that there's a very deep link between the two. And being inspired to be a doctor was related to my mental illness, to be honest. I'm not quite sure where I'd be uh, in terms of my career path had I not had a mental mental illness. illness. But most times I say to people that I identify with my mental illness primarily because I've lived with it for twice the time I've been a doctor. And this time is a blessing as well. Mm. Uh, it didn't just come miraculously that I speak so openly and I'm on this amazing platform that you've afforded us. But there was a journey of healing and acceptance and then feeling a responsibility to speak. After I had a public relapse, I felt there was nothing left to hide. And it inspired me to inspire other people to overcome stigma and to put a face to mental illness in the sense that despite the stereotypes and what people expect a mentally mentally ill person to be, they can see somebody who's a medical doctor living with bipolar disorder, having a full life, as opposed to the stereotypes of what a mentally mentally ill person is expected to be. So here I am today now with our listeners, greetings to all of them. Sure. Wow. Um, wow. That was amazing. I don't know about yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? That, that was just wow because I just wow. I was just listening to you and I just wanted to listen like more and more. <laughs> and thank you so much for actually being that person to be like you know to help destigmatize mental health, especially when you mean when you said like you know live with bipolar disorder, but also have a full life. And understand that quality of life is still there. You know, even with a, a mental illness, it's sort of, it's still there. You know, with the correct treatment, with the correct help, it's still there. And I love that. 
Thank you so much, because that just made me feel so good inside. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with you that, you know, with the correct intervention, Venetia, I really like your term, that with the correct interventions and that when they come, one really can live a full life. And you don't have to be defined by the illness. You live with it and not just say, I yes. suffer from bipolar. I live yes. with Yes. Yes. That is it. You know, That's the quality deep, of life. That's so, so powerful. It's Yeah, I agree. It's so good. <laughs> and I think for me, Dr. Ngobo, I'm so sad it's raining and I can't see your face because I really also feed off of um, <laughs> expression. So I'm struggling a bit, but I'm trying to listen very hard. And you said a lot of things like Venetia was saying, you know, this idea of living with bipolar, you've named your 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 person your your persona i guess when when you're in that state as madam j did i did i hear you correctly yes you heard me yes. correct okay take us through how that so i think for me i, I want to give you context for why i'm gonna track back quite a bit as you know we have a conversational plan but i think my responsibility as as co-host is also to make sure we don't lose the places where people can get left behind and where there's an opportunity for them to see themselves in your narrative and i think a lot of people are struggling with naming their place in mental health so this idea of like naming the bipolar you now live with, please unpack that for us. And if you would speak to us about, you know, those really hard moments, particularly when you were in medical school and practicing as a doctor and you found the stigma persisting amongst colleagues, how did you manage to cope in those spaces? Without trivializing the condition, by all means, people mustn't say that, you know, Sam um, now describes her condition as Madam J. And, you know, it's to, right. for, for me to make sense of the illness. I've personified my manic state as Madam J. And that's right. how I describe, I've personified because one needs to realize that when you're in that state, yes, it's your body there and doing things that might be disorganized and abnormal, elevated mood, irritability. But much as I'm behaving in that way, I'm not that person in my normal way. That overtness, no. that talkative state, that irritability, no. that harshness. I know for a fact that I'm not that kind of a person. But the difficulty is that you can't always explain it to people who don't understand you. Somebody who meets me in that state, that's their definition of who Sangay is, who Dr. Noble is. They don't realize that that's a person is unwell at that moment when i'm going on shopping sprees unfortunately i can't return the receipts and say excuse me please take back that expensive designer bag or please uh, can i just get a refund for that expensive meal i just had because i wasn't in my right uh, space when i swiped the card so it's, mm-hmm. i've personified um madam j as that manic state that i'm in because I literally become this individual when I'm in that state. I'm very irritable. I have the symptoms related to a manic episode. And for me to make sense of my manic state and the bipolar condition, I've named her. And it's been a journey of being accepted. Medical school was very difficult for me because I finished my trick to get into medical school. One knows that there's a certain level of performance and you're the yeah. star achiever. So yeah, I came yes. in with my bursaries and told, thinking I'm going to be the best doctor, record time. And we all know that record time is also an illusion to some extent. But, mm. you know, I thought I'd get into yes, medical yes. school and finish a, with the allotted time. And it was nothing close to that. And I found myself being lost in within because when people were writing, Sangeet was in hospital. And for Sangeet to catch up, she was studying during school holidays. 
so in June, when people are taking the term break, I was writing uh, agro tats along with people who were also writing subs. So bursary went away by third, fourth year. And I'm just so grateful that my professors were so understanding. And during that time, they understood the condition when I'd be booked off. But it's just so difficult because I didn't feel like I could connect with my colleagues I started off with. If you look at it, because it was, a, I would insist mm. at times to, I insisted at the time to come and write exams, but I was manic. And they couldn't necessarily refuse me. If I'm speaking like this to you, irritable, <laughs> but coming, saying I'm coming to my exam, they can't turn me away. They didn't have a reason to. And obviously, right. because I wasn't in my world state, I would not do well in those exams. And so, you know, that record time thing, I learned it very early on that it's an illusion. And fast forward to me being a doctor, it's come with its own challenges because as as professionals at times, you're not kind to each other. So you get to yep. hear the kind of thoughts of colleagues towards the mentally ill. We treat sometimes the people we stigmatize as well. And to hear those things would be disturbing as well because you expect better from people you work with. But yet again, the thing of them versus us um, and that, that yeah. hierarchy we tend to have. So it, 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 for me to speak up, um, I had to be honest with people I trust and tell them, you know, when I do an interview, I declare it. I have this condition. I hope it doesn't. It doesn't count against my chances of being here because of the stereotypes often of uh, people living with my condition. I want it to be embraced fully and for it to be known that Madam J is on tour. I wouldn't say that during a work interview, absolutely not. But right. I would say this is what I come with. I didn't say Madam J because that would make them worry about my mental state. At <laughs> right, at the interview. Hmm. No, but I think... I think that's brilliant. And I asked the question because we've spent a long time in the season trying to personally take journeys where we are able to identify the declined languishing states from the normal thriving states. And when you spoke about how you named your bipolar state as Madam J, I think it can help each and every one of us recognize that there's a, the state of not normalcy does exist and when it comes you should be able to dissociate it from yourself you said something yes. really powerful when you said it's not who i am and i think for for many healthcare professionals because these states of languishing of burnout exist in long stretches it becomes easier for us to identify that as who we are and that as our baseline mental health state but I think you have a powerful tool to try and differentiate the two. And I guess in many ways, it's also how you cope with navigating the distinction between who you are, how you add value, and how these compromised states affect that, that you, which you desire to put out at any given time. And this, and this just touches on, I was just, I was just thinking, uh, Dr. Ngobe, it, it, it's so cool that you actually, your unique way of personifying that space mm. actually might be exactly what Dr. Al said. It's that coping mechanism. Yeah. And I think it's so good because then you're able to dissociate yourself. And I think that's something that I think a lot of people that might be struggling with a mental health is issue, especially, you know, medical students, healthcare workers, anybody part of the medical fraternity can actually be like, oh my goodness, there is a unique way of actually mm. coping. And even if it might not be what someone else is okay with, 
It's what you're okay with and how you manage that is for your increased quality of life and your perception of what your quality of life should be. Mm. I absolutely agree with you, Venetia, because when I was still in medical school, and this is speaking to medical students as well, and, you know, mm. with the pressures that it comes with when you're working is that and I didn't understand what was happening because, mm. yes, I was diagnosed, but I didn't, it, it wasn't explained to me. No one sat me down. It was a hush yeah. topic. So yeah. as a result, I couldn't understand why I've chosen this career path yet I can't wake up. Am yeah. I lazy? Does it mean I'm, sure. you know, I didn't understand that I'm actually showing symptoms of depression. Why don't I want to live anymore? I didn't understand that, oh, term it as suicidality. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I have this color perfect life as people would see it from the outside. But I couldn't understand because if I told people that I'd rather actually not be alive or I'd rather not do this degree anymore, it's taking too long. I'd rather just sleep in and, you know, the door's feeling 10 kilometers away, even though it's a few meters away. I didn't understand what was going on with me. And how do you explain it when you seem to have a privileged life that as people would perceive it. Mm. You, I didn't know how to articulate my difficulty. Yes. So and I felt alienated from it. So just to say that, you know, this, I'm so grateful for these platforms where we can actually name the difficulty. If a medical student is listening yeah. to us speaking, they, if yeah, they don't exactly. understand why they can't get out of bed. All of a sudden they were this morning person getting yeah. up at 5 a.m. able to study at 3 a.m. You know, the hours that it comes with to study. Then all of a sudden, you can barely get out of bed at 7 a.m. You know, your lectures are starting at 8. You don't understand what's happening out of the blue or suddenly or gradually. So to understand what's happening with you and realize this is not me. I'm not a lazy person. So what's happening? So to name that is so important and to be aware of it. That's exactly that. It's that awareness and it's also that knowledge, like that knowledge to say that, you know, I'm aware of what I'm feeling. I'm aware of how I'm doing things. I'm aware of who I am and, and this is not who I am. So what am I going to do to change that? And I think that comes sure. with, with a lot of confidence and a lot of, you know, mm. confidence in knowing that I'm, I'll be okay. I just I might need so something to help me be okay. Thank you so much. I actually want, I know, we will definitely get to that direction of the conversation we need to, but I really think there's so much here. Dr. Ngoa, I think we spoke around, you know, this idea of gaining the knowledge so that you can have the awareness. I want to touch on something that you spoke to in your intro, which is, you know, the lack of insight. And I almost want to ask the question, what happened for you when you when you were able to internalize this information that you once didn't understand about yourself and you, you know, you were a clinician with insight, what did it mean for you then to be living with the, with the condition? And if you are willing to divulge, cause I just think there may be a lot of people who relate to the, the length of the struggle. How long did it take you to finish medical school because um, of your, your journey with bipolar? I'm happy to disclose everything. Uh, first, Thank you, you. <laughs> asked me about you know, how did I shift from, you know, the denial that I was having, um, the non-adherence that I was having, the resentment towards the mm. condition that A versus me space to I'm now a mental health advocate. I speak openly about it. Uh, right. And for people who have loved ones living with this, but they themselves don't live with it, they often come to me frustrated to say, how did you start talking like this? My loved one is saying they don't have it, but they've been diagnosed, they're refusing treatment. How can I get them to? Then they want me to meet personally with everybody, which is not necessarily <laughs> feasible, you know. Firstly, medical school, I graduated from Guadalupe Natal, UK, is at N. 
So the degree was five years. The term was five years at the time. And I took an extra two years as a result. So I did not finish in record time. And it was not a sign related to my, you know, intelligence or anything. But right. the responses I was experiencing at the time. And I pause and say that there are many factors that impact us, not necessarily even related to mental health issues. And oftentimes mm-hmm. in our profession, we have that tendency because to have gotten to where you've gotten to in any health professional space, maybe you're a high performer and in high school, therefore you're in the degree that you're in. So all of a sudden things aren't working out in the timelines that you want them to work in. And that yeah. was a very difficult thing for me to feel because now I'm seeing my colleagues graduate. Imagine when the time is coming now, the people I started with are in the finish line and I'm not there. Then by the time I'm an intern, they're now my medical officers or senior to me. It was quite difficult. Or when nice. I'm a final year student, my colleagues are now interns. And you know, this, this transition phases are quite difficult um, for mm-hmm. us. So that's what happened with me. I didn't finish in the record time. I'm grateful for the journey I've navigated because it helped me see very early on that the term record time is a mental perception. It's an illusion. Mm. And I learned that early on. Sure, that's such valuable perspective, I think, for us, especially as we encapsulate, you know, what it's meant for you and trying to to make sure we journey into places where we can also personally recognize our mental health declines, which I, I think we know are more common than not. And under this banner of normally I'm not coping, would you kindly unpack for us this idea of, you know, the resilience contest? What is it? And how have you seen it play out in our space in particular? My understanding of it, I termed it resilience contest because Oftentimes we look at other people and we look at ourselves and then we judge who copes better. And one thing I realized when I finished medical school, because everyone looks so poised in the lecture hall and these people who stay through the lecture, others have different attentions (laughs) and different priorities. Um, I didn't, I would have liked to know that people struggled with the same anxieties that I was struggling with. Will I pass? Mm. Will I make it? It's only things you find out in internship where people are like, no, medical school was tough. I would have liked yeah. to know that, but we all are, you know, our, people often talk about a swan swimming gracefully, but underneath yes, the water. <laughs> and I would have liked to have that piece of knowledge to know that we shared in similar anxieties related to finishing our studies. Others have, um, you know, diagnosed anxiety disorders. So mm. oftentimes, you know, the colleague who will stay the entire night during a call, maybe not sleep at all, this is you realizing that actually I end here. I really am struggling. Yeah. Um, I really can't do the hours that I'm expected to do yet to fill my logbook. I can do this. I'm struggling. How do I cope better? Do, you know, that resilience con- uh, contest I perceive is that that person who's feeling that they need student counseling won't use it because maybe other colleagues don't see the need for themselves to use it. But that inferiority that then one feels that they need more support than the next colleague becomes a complex on its own. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say that this resilience contest is the need to almost protect the image that we are resilient at all costs. And even if it means we don't, um, take the moment to acknowledge when we need the help or we need the support. 
even if it's reaching out to a roommate when you're a student or to a family member when you're more senior, we try to protect the image that we have resilience, not necessarily that we are, but we have resilience, even if organically it doesn't exist. Absolutely. And, you know, when I was um, doing my research about young MD dead to be great and hearing about <laughs> you know, Dr. Tatley, I thought this concept of mentorship is so critical because if I know that the person who's ahead of me is saying, Yo, right. that very line goes a very mm-hmm. long way where you find the consultant you are aspiring to be or whatever specialty mm. or you're a medical student wanting to be an intern qualifying Having that person who says, yo, I know what it's like where you can't wake up, it's winter. Just have somebody saying, I've been where you've been, but look at me, it can be done. That goes a very long way. So I just keep saying kudos to even the support structures in SADC where Venetia is. Because right. to hear that, I so wish that there was a young MD and to know of SADC when I was young it would have <laughs> made a huge difference. I think thank you so much for that because that's what I always motivate for. In And I think Dr. L also knows in all my talks, I like yeah. push the fact that it's okay to be, you know, not okay. But just knowing that there's like a service available, there's someone you can talk to, you know, that makes the biggest difference. Because I think, and, and I always say this, communication and conversation is going to be the key to getting everyone to destigmatize mental health and just sort of, you know, yeah. have those conversations and keep having them, especially like platforms like this. And I, that's why I'm so excited about this platform as well, because Young MD has been awesome. Mm. Uh, thank you for for your commitment, both of you, to to the conversations, because I agree completely. We need the examples through mentors. And, and I think mentorship is also another opportunity to have conversations that are harder, where maybe if you are shy and you can't raise it, you know, to your intern rep or to, to your, what do you call, what do you call the person who oversees the interns? Oh, I can't curator. remember now, but yes, you know, if you can't mention <laughs> that to your curator, you know, at least you have somebody more senior who's walked the path. But I think both of you are pointing to the reality that there is a need for that real vulnerability to exist for people to be able to, to truly look at themselves and look at their stories and, not be too judgmental for where they are and how they are. And I and I really want to go back to some of the examples that Dr. Ngobo used about practically what it looks like to not be coping. You know, if Precious were here, I'm sure she'd speak of things in a scale as she is as she does so naturally. But I mean Dr. Ngobo, you highlighted things that are are like activities of daily living, struggling to get out of bed. Oftentimes we we, because we know the DSM criteria, we might want to classify it only when we have all seven, you know, instead of when one shows up and it causes some sort of interruption to normalcy. How would you advise somebody like that who maybe it's just, it's just, they've decided that they are just an insomniac and they don't recognize that even that there's value in getting good rest, you know? You know, funny, just to, as a sideline towards this, is that uh, to, for me to remember uh, the intern curator term means that I'm not too far, but it's not too far <laughs> forward. I can still, I'm not too far off when I was in internships, not too long ago. Right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but to talk about the symptoms related to it, you know, in mental health, the definition of having a mental illness is when the domains of your life are affected. So we have our work environment, we have our relationships, 
and I'm forgetting the third one, but in that, if any of those domains are affected, you have to really wait until you tick all the boxes that say you are depressed. When you find that there's a symptom, an experience rather, because at the time you might not have a mental illness, when you start finding mm. that a certain way of being is starting to cause distress in your life, rather err on caution and try and understand it and unpack it. Use the services that are available, like SADC, um, mm. to to speak to a counselor. Your should there are there are services in the universities that provide the support to students. Explain to them that you know I'm somebody that's an early riser. I wake up normally at four, or I normally you know the our sleeping patterns are often off in our during our study time anyway, or study years. Is that you know right. I normally wake up at three. I have this pattern of functioning. I wake up at three. I study for two hours. I go back to bed. Now I just sleep right through, and I'm always late for lectures. That's an alarm bell. And yeah. just that. Yeah, to say yeah. for me with my mania, when I be manic, I couldn't even perform very well because I'm having slept and I'm like swallowing the textbook literally, and mm-hmm. that's also not healthy. And at times when people say, "Oh, I can do it two hours of sleep," mm-hmm. that's long term is not a great idea. But I was mm-hmm. I would have a, a system within. I come back from medical school, I'd sleep, then I study. All of a sudden, I'm not needing any sleep, but I'm pu- I'm pushing until the next day. Even that's also saying yeah. that. I, you know, with, with having bipolar, you know, the lack of sleep, you know, loss of need for sleep. So people often look at the whole, am I lazy to not be waking up because I'm depressed? But even with having manic symptoms, when you start now not sleeping at all, that's also not healthy. So it's to see or to recognize and be aware, as Venetia had mentioned, where that self-awareness and when you're seeing that you are deviating from your normal pattern of mm-hmm. function that's when we can start alerting ourselves before you have a full-blown diagnosis. And I think you touching on that makes so much sense because I, and I think it happens with, I mean, when, when I did talks for medical students a while back, I think it was earlier in the year and they were like people that were saying, you know, they, they normally didn't need the sleep or, you know, this before they needed the sleep and now they don't need the sleep, but it's important to also be able to track that. Mm. Am I right in saying like, like you have to be able to track that? So it's so important to have like sleep journals or to have journaling happen so that you also can be like, okay, it's not been two days that I haven't slept nicely. It's been like eight days in actual fact. I absolutely agree yeah. with that. I absolutely agree with that, Venetia, because it may feel tedious that you're documenting every day, but even if you're not doing it every single day to review your week, even if you're not writing it down, because some people may yes. find that a bit tedious. But to just reflect on the week gone by, how did I sleep this time? How was I? Uh, yeah. you, know, you know, just to be self-awareness, as you mentioned, is so important because in that you can track when you're starting to have alarm bells, when you need uh, red flags. Mm. So I completely agree with this thing of, you know, having a diary, journaling, or just having moments of reflection to mm. see, am I now deviating from my norm? And what do I do about it? Yeah. I think this is such an important point. And even if we need to circle around here until we find a way to safely, you know, get people to hear this, because as you were both speaking, I almost thought about the clinician and I can put myself out there who'd probably first consider the fact that this is their stress response before they acknowledge that it's a mental decline. And I think what you both said around the pattern recognition, even over time, is a critical part of making sure we don't 
negatively assume or we don't quickly assume that, no, it's just a stress response or I'm just under pressure and then push it away. Because that's also really common amongst us is, is just to really excuse it as pressure rather than I have a decline in my baseline and this is putting me at risk for uh, poor mental health in general over this next period. Mm-hmm. Especially with the expectations of being high functioning, am I right? I mean, yeah. medical students, medical professionals, the expectation is that you're high functioning, so you must essentially be able to cope with less sleep or cope with less right. me time, for the, for the lack of a better word. But I'm thinking that like that's so important to touch on that it's not. Mm. You know, it's it's important to know that you're a human being and you have, you know, you have your mental health quality to think about, you know, and your sleep mm. quality and your self-care quality and also like setting up those boundaries. Mm. No, I'm completely yeah. with you. And that sense of it speaks yet again to this topic of resilience contest, Venetia, yes. I believe. Everything that you're listing there speaks to that resilience contest of, you know, how some people will say, oh, I slept three hours, I've studied this, then the next student is going to say, oh, wow, I only studied this topic only, you know, mm-hmm. or I only read one page and I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. You don't want to be that student who, yeah. at, or the, or one will say, oh, I read through three t- chapters or three topics and you only read one. So that even conjures up feelings of anxiety as well or inferiority. So mm-hmm. what you're saying is just so true, uh, Venetia. And I, I, just with that specific example, Lotsumoba, I can only imagine how much more exacerbated it is for people who are specializing, who now, you know, we're not even in the same environment, in the same medical school, uh, at least for the most part, sharing the same factors as in, we're all students. Many of us don't have families. We live in res. So for the most part, the conditions around us are the same. When you're more senior, everybody's juggling their own reality and their own world. And more and more, they're expected to be the most resilient of the bunch, even though they have the greatest pressure of the bunch. Mm, and that term, you know, that very term to say, training to be a specialist, and you're expected to be at a certain state or level i understand obviously the academic aspect but also our circum the circumstances are so different uh, you know there's some people who will i don't know living with sick parents at the time mm. you have four children as well with one child or even if you don't have children or a family that you're living with or live alone there are also demands and pressures but we all that show up and, and the expectations seem so uniform at that level as if we don't have um you know other challenges and Funny you should say that, Naruto, is that you know that sense of that that, con- that the resilience contest and also where you should be in life is a challenge because someone once said mm. to me, and it stuck at the time when they said, you know, medical school is like, and they were told by somebody who was senior to them, and and they were saying that medical school. So we were still doing our medical office at time, or we were still in in MO post. They were, oh, I'm so sorry, and they were told that medical school is that like your metric then your specialty is when is your degree you know those kinds of status things and i thought it's a lot of hard work even qualifying it's hard being a student that hierarchy is such a problem because you think that sense of completion is never there because when you're a consultant you must be a prof when you're a prof you must be you know it just continues like a a hamster wheel or this never-ending mountain to climb 
I think this is such an important point because I think part of us coping is setting a personal expectation rather than a societal one on ourselves. You know, I've heard of someone who, I don't know if it was a meme or I heard it from a friend around, you know, an intern, I guess, was asked by a consultant what they want to specialize in. And the response was quality of life. <laughs> and I thought that was wow. so powerful because wow. actually that person has set a standard for themselves. They're saying, regardless of how I maneuver through this space, I want to be able to be assured that the quality of my life is good. And there may be many aspects in that response, you know, mental health, physical health, their vocation and their job and how they add value. But I think it, it speaks to the fact that the bar needs to be, what do we expect the healthiest version of ourselves to look like? And particularly as pertains to our mental health, knowing that for ourselves, because like you said, Dr. Ngobo, the standards may be blanket, right? So everybody may be put under the same umbrella in terms of expectations, but the realities are not the same. And for long as, for so long as that's the, that's the situation, we need to be responsible for defining the standards that'll keep us at our healthiest across all facets of our lives. Mm. And absolutely, Dr. Cutler, you know, you and I, I, I shared this with you uh, previously that I was in a hike, um, Sisters for Mental Health hike, and I had met this really amazing individual who was a doctor in the Department of Anesthetics. So mm-hmm. as we were walking, I found out that she's a doctor, and, I was, and we had joked actually that, yo, somebody had fallen, and we were like, ah, we're off duty, guys, it was just a joke, and then I found out <laughs> that she's a doctor as well. And then as, as we finished the hike, I then asked her, I said to her, so which year of your age time? Because when it said she's in the Department of Anesthesia, I assumed that she was, you know, at a rich post. And then she says, and it stuck with me a year later or so, when she says, I'm just an MO, I'm just an anesthetics MO. And I said to her, you can't just say just that very fact that you're doing what you're doing, mm. um, you're honoring what you're doing. You're not just an MO, you're a doctor who's in the anesthetics department and that's where you're at. And that's where you'll end up. And that's not a failure or saying that you're behind in any way. But that's how I was speaking to that sense of you're climbing this never-ending mountain. And if you say, academically, I stop here, I may still read and stay up to date or current. But in my career, I'm happy where I am in the space. And if that, mm-hmm. our spaces might be different, not everyone's aspiring to be a prof. But if, you know, we have different aspirations within the field, you know, mm. and it's okay. It's okay. I completely wow. agree. V, That's you wanted to say something? Sure. I was just like, when, when she said that, and when she said just an MO, I was like, but that's such a big achievement. And I think exactly. that's, that's something that we really need to, as people in general, need to be like, wherever we are in our lives, wherever we are, we need to have that full quality of life in that space. And that's more valuable than saying, okay, I am, I am this or I'm that. Because you're a person that's doing your job, that's doing it with passion and doing it with consistency. And that's, that's important. Whether you're a GP, whether you're, um, you know, a specialist, whether you're, you know, an OT, whether you're an ancillary, you know, any one of those, it's the doing it with passion and compassion and, commitment to that and I think that's that's important it's never just anything and I think that's something that we really need to emphasize for medical students and interns and things like that because 
otherwise they ever they're going to feel exactly that uh dr samke it's it's just that you know that it's a never ending wheel and they're always trying to attain what someone else has attained but are they they probably comfortable with it but they feel that expectation and and sadly we do this to each other as professionals yeah. within the field actually because finish medical school the next question like as you graduate you ask what are you going to specialize in you know and yeah. you might not necessarily want to specialize and you're very happy with your medical degree and you want to be a general practitioner and that's not inferior yeah. to being a specialist no you know that hierarchy is within amongst ourselves it's problematic actually because what what completion looks like is different what success looks like is different and you could be a brilliant general practitioner it doesn't make you inferior yes to somebody who might have a specialty or super specialty, uh, but this hierarchy just continues. It continues yeah. and one has to, for themselves, draw that, that that boundary and barrier that says, I stop here and I'm content where I am. What does that look for me? Yes, I love that. What does it look like for me? And I think Dr. Precious, Dr. Al, you can remember, I think you remember that Dr. Precious said the same thing. Very, very yep. similar to that. And I think that is so valuable. And I'm so glad that I get to be here and just listen to two doctors say the same thing. And that's what it has to be. It's very, aligned. <laughs> very aligned. <laughs> very aligned. You know, as you both are speaking, I couldn't help but like track back to an episode I was listening to of oh, Super Soul Sunday, where Brene Brown is speaking to Oprah. And I think it's a 2017 podcast episode must listen if you enjoy podcasting and there's a portion of the podcast where they both reflect on joy and and how closely related gratitude is to joy and as you were both speaking i just heard how at the end of the day this resilience contest robs us of the most powerful emotion we have to actually continue the race and that's joy we don't have joy about our days we are constantly worried that we are not close enough to the next step. And for so long as it's robbing us of joy, it's robbing us of the opportunities to be grateful for where we are and where we've gotten to. We absolutely minimize the feat it takes to get to, I mean, seven years is not a joke, to get to just internship. That's a big deal. And if, if we don't prioritize maintaining gratitude so that we can experience joy, we'll forever be languishing will forever feel like we're not coping. And then this becomes just another thing to add to the to-do list. How do I not cope? Instead of how do I cultivate the positive emotions that help me recognize that there are things to be thankful for, grateful for, and things to be content about here. Because I, I said that because I think you used a big word, Dr. Ngobo. Content is so powerful. Like <laughs> when I think of content, I think of like a full glass, not half full or half empty a completely full glass. And so maybe just to reflect on that, how have you maintained joy in the presence of everything that you've experienced in your journey so far? You know, before I touch on that, what I find so amazing what you're saying, Dr. Katli, is that, you know, you mentioned the seven years that we've studied. And I just think that if we can just remind ourselves of whatever signpost or goalpost we were aiming for, that joy we felt when you got the degree, and then that's like, okay, it's out of the way. Then yeah. FC, that joy goes out of the way. That's, you know what I mean? And right. just remind 100%. ourselves of that feeling um, that we had when you're in medical school, you're thinking, will I ever finish? You know, 
to remind ourselves of that joy that you speak of, that uh, Brené Brown spoke of with Oprah, that to remind ourselves of how, how we felt when we accomplished each goal and wherever we say that, okay, it's here for me. And going to the next question that you've asked me, I have to be honest for the sake of people listening to me before they think, oh my gosh, Dr. Noble's forever joyful. Oh my gosh, she's just mm. she's just nailing this advocacy thing. One of the cornerstones of what I of the work that I do in terms of speaking about mental health issues is to be honest. And I believe right. that in it is to be vulnerable. And in it is to one of the biggest messages that I have is that struggling is part of the human experience acknowledging mm. those because I often felt alone at times before I spoke I'm like am I the only one who just feels like alone right. um am I the only one who just feels like life isn't looking like social media I'm not coining it all the time <laughs> you know, you're just thinking am I the only one in this reality of mine yes. you know so for me I started learning how to stick and Denisha will help me with this one way you learn to sit with difficult feelings you know psychologists also have that term of sit. yes Sit with it. And you know, you, you sit with the emotion of joy. We love the joy and the happy. But when you come to the space of difficult emotions, be it feeling uh alone, feeling as if you alienated in a certain experience, we end up feeling isolated and we don't embrace, we'd rather cover up and cover up using that whole toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. And for me, mm-hmm. I've just been able to reflect on my journey and say, this was meant to happen. I wouldn't be in this certain space had that terrible thing not happened. So I've utilized my difficult experiences. I think I remember literally having a conversation with myself where I said, Samge, there is no other Samge on this earth. I will present as Dr. Samge with my relapses, with embarrassing moments. I cannot mm. present in any other way except as Samge unless I'm, no, unless I'm in another lifetime. So for as long as I live this, walk this earth and live as I'm there, I can't run away from my mistakes. I can't run away from the embarrassing relapses that I was witnessed having. And I literally remember it was a turning point at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday, a random day in capacity leave, I remember. But I said, Samge, you can't present as anybody else. So you're going to have to walk this journey. I had had a very public relapse. My colleagues had witnessed it. People I don't know had witnessed it. I had a manic and psychotic episode. And for the longest time, I'd wake up at three in the morning crying, you know, wishing things away. And I'd wake up like, oops, no, it's still there, you know. And then it still happened. You just can't run away from it. And I really, really got to the point where I conversed with myself. Uh, and I said, okay, Samye, this what happened, you cannot erase. And I thought I committed career suicide. You know, mm. but I just thought, literally having a conversation that I cannot wish away my mistakes. I can't wish away my relapses. I can't wish away my unwell state. And hence, I personified. That's when I literally personified Madam J and forgave myself uh, mm. for whatever mishaps that people... And I can't explain to everybody who doesn't understand. Not everyone understands the impaired relationships or rather obliterated relationships from that time. But I made sense and forgave myself by saying that was some gays, Madam J. But also saying that does not absolve me from the responsibility or consequences. But it's saying that Madam J was that individual. She's also a part of some gays. She's a part of me. She's inside me. I love everything you said, like goodness me everything (laughs) 
so I, I like I promise you I wish I could see your face actually if signal Me was better. Because like, oh. I am I am missing that so badly today. I'm oh. like, oh my goodness. Just to see you everything. would be everything, yes. <laughs> I, I think it's so, we shall see each other. <laughs> wow. I feel gobsmacked actually. Me Just too. with all of your information, I feel gobsmacked. And when when I re listen to this episode, I'm gonna be gobsmacked again. I can just, I, I can just know it. And, and it's fine because I think that's where the value comes from. 100%. You know, the realness. Am I right, Dr. Al? It's that real, raw emotion of this is what it is. And this is my experience. And knowing that it's okay to have that experience. And I and love not that. Not to shy away from it. Not to shy no, away from it. Yes. Like it's part of you. This is an experience that you've, you've endured. You've managed managed and coped with I think is something that is of utter value because it also shares to others that this is something that can be coped with and managed and it's important that forgiveness I think is so valuable because us as people often don't forgive ourselves for a mistake Mm. yet you know or forgive ourselves for anything that we might have done but it doesn't Mm. mean that we can't Yes. And only by forgiveness can we actually like continue. And you know, like, I mean, when, when I think about this and I, and I want to like use this as my little space then just through this is to be like, you know, if any, and I always say this, and I've been saying this since COVID, those medical students and those interns and those registrars or your medical professional, if you're feeling stressed and you feel like you're in that space, please reach out. Because there is so much available. It's just, you know, it's just that one even anonymous conversation to have with a complete person that comes from support and non-judgment on one of the counseling lines will be so valuable that you might be able to get into that space. And I think that's where it's lacking, that openness to actually be able to say, I, you know, I'm struggling like this. And to have that conversation similar to what you had with yourself in that space to have that conversation with someone else. It, it's just so valuable. Oh, yeah. You know, my, my doctor explained something to me that I was unaware of that, you know, I mentioned this when, when, when uh, Dr. Kaki was introducing me and I earlier on, I said, I experienced social stigma, cultural stigma, mm-hmm. religious stigma, and all of those had to do what people had inverted commas done to me or subjected yeah. me to. But she brought me to an awareness and it was only recent in recent years. So 2001 was that diagnosis. But in 2017, she said, you are struggling with self-stigma and it stopped me dead in my tracks. And for me, I expanded on that when I thought of self-compassion, self-discrimination and all those things related to the self, you know, Uh, because oftentimes you don't even realize that we are making ourselves our own prisoners. Just with our thoughts. This is so and just with like, oh, goodness. I love carry this. Carry on me, go ahead. <laughs> I, love, I, I love for these episodes. I feel like that. So I'm like, <laughs> it's just, it, it brings me so much into my space where, because, I mean, the only reason I think I've ever started at SADAG was because I had such a passion for this. And right. conversations like this and all the talks, like all of that makes it all valuable. And to share this, I promise you, I am going to share this podcast every which way because it's just <laughs> valuable for whether you are a medical student, whether you are yeah. a medical professional, but also if you're just 
a person that works a nine to five job or you working something and you a normal human being just to listen to this and be like each of our each of our experiences are so unique, but we all have that common thread where we all want a quality of life. We, we often downplay, I agree with you, Venetia, that we often downplay the power of connection and the power of mm. community. So I yeah. fully understand when you speak about that you want to share it far and wide to people, medical and non-medical, because the things we're speaking about aren't limited. Yes, we, speak, we are largely reaching medical professionals, but the truth or the core of what we're saying appeals to everybody in whatever profession they're walking in. So community and connection is so critical. Sure. You have both said the most incredible things. I'm in my feels like <laughs> I'm quiet because I think you guys took me to I'm places so in gone. my soul that I, I resonated so deeply. This concept of forgiving yourself, I think is something that is hard for clinicians to do because they don't see themselves as agents of a lot of the pain and the experiences they have. But I agree with you, Dr. Ngobin, that there is a self-forgiveness that you have to assume mm-hmm. because somewhere along the way, you take on the perceptions, you take on yes. the responsibilities that people label you with and you internalize them and you make them your own. And the self-forgiveness gives you an opportunity to take that away. Glennon Doyle says something so powerful. It's not, it's not her quote, it's someone else's quote, I forget who, but the quotes, and I'm paraphrasing, says something along the lines of re-examine everything you've ever read in a book, heard on a, heard in, in any sh- way, shape or form and reject anything that, that sort of disgraces your own soul. And I think the, the journey to self-forgiveness is exactly that. It's just, trying to pick up the pieces of what what has all ended up in your tank and sieving out the things that should be there and that shouldn't be there and helping yourself pave a path towards better. And as you were speaking, I just got, like I literally got a vivid image of a car riding over a, a sunflower and how our work here is really to be the people who stop if we were the drivers of that very car and go back and, and try to piece together this precious flower which is really the condition of our mental state or our hearts Mm -hmm. as it pertains to some of the things that really tragically interrupt or disrupt our human experience so thank you both so much for speaking so so vulnerably and honestly on this topic i wanted to close by maybe us reflecting on you know what can people do to a large extent we've unpacked in this episode what it feel what it may feel like for people to recognize where they are and how they're not coping. But practically speaking, you know, what can be done? I'd like to use this time for Dr. Ngobo to maybe unpack what Sisters for Mental Health does and how you guys help people, you know, take those steps. And then V, for you to unpack a bit about SADAG. And I'm going to share a mental health helpline that people can access. Thank you for that. Sisters for Mental Health is literally my passion project and part of my life's calling. It started very impromptu, very chaotically. Someone has been catching up with the interest. Literally, it started with us hiking as a group of 10 people. And now right. it's just started such an interest. You know, it's just, it had been a bit overwhelming. But at the core of Sisters for Mental Health is to provide psychoeducation for people who are struggling with mental health issues, but also people who want to understand it. But one of the biggest things that I feel is so important in this talk about mental health and mental illness, which I love about what we're doing right now, is that 
it's in a non-threatening environment. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be somber when you talk about mental health. Mm. It doesn't have to be somber. And I think part of that was is an extension of myself that just see somebody living life, going for a hike, doing other things where we also plan to have lunches. Unfortunately, we're living in a time of COVID where many things that were intended haven't happened, that are still intended to happen. But to right. do things and connect in an interactive environment, talk these issues. So for example, we went for a hike and then we had a, a psychiatrist there and we had the hike, and after the hike, we sat down at Walter Sisulu, that difficult one, and we sat down under the tree, and then we spoke about, you know, mental health, mental health issues, and that was the thing when we spoke about different topics. So there's a different topic that we schedule in a socially interactive environment, and one may say, okay, I moved in Johannesburg. What do I do if I'm in, I'm in Cape Town, Guadalupe, Natal, Limpopo, and I'm listening to this? And the well, they plan is to reach more people that's for sure but the other thing that's at the core is to collaborate with other organizations which are aligned and that probably will lead to Venetia because Sadiq has been so incredible in embracing me because I was just this baby in terms of you know um, Sisters of Mental is a baby compared to how long Lifeline and, and, and Sadiq have been but in me reaching out to the senior people there they have just been so incredible and on our website They've agreed and have gotten their permission to say people have been coming to Dr. Sanking or were saying, writing these long, heartfelt messages saying, help me. This is my situation. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm getting so overwhelmed. People sometimes don't know about what's available, as Venetia mentioned earlier. And there's a resources page on our website, which has links to SADC, has links to Lifeline. And the plan is to just make as many resources available to people who might not know about these services. If somebody's in a rural area, in the Eastern Cape, they can know that they've just jumped into this website called Sisters for Mental Health, but then now they've become aware from the awareness where to from there. And that's what people would say to me. Like, now I'm aware of is a, uh, something called mental illness, mental health issues. What do I do? So you go to our resources page then and you click and the help is readily available. My plan is to make it, you know, I believe in collaboration so deeply and it's not about being competitive mm. on your platform, but we collaborate with each other. So you know, Lerato, when you approached <laughs> me, I agreed immediately because it's a collaboration is driven at moving people forward. And for me, any topic related to mental health, mental illness, any organization that approaches, that is above board, of course, I'm so happy to associate. So Sisters for Mental Health, the website is www.sistersformentalhealth.co.za. Absolutely incredible. Thanks for sharing that because I was going to ask for it. <laughs> okay, See? cool. And in Instagram, it's at Sisters for Mental Health, one word. Yes, please follow, guys, uh, so you can get a lot of the activities. And I love what you guys are doing, Dr. Ngo, but just congratulations on, like you said, trying to get people aware, engaged, supported in the real-life setting because mental health happens in life, right? Not mm-hmm. just in in counseling rooms or where you can get the formal assistance, which we're not trying to devalue at all, but sometimes in the journey of mental health, it may be easier just to start where you're most familiar and that's the opportunity that you're giving people. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, you know, just before Venetia speaks, there's a thing of prevention is also very important. And we, one of the first topic we had in the large group was to talk about how do we prevent 
mental illness. And once you have it, how do we prevent it from worsening? How do we contain yeah. it? So, yeah, I just thought I'd make that point when you talk about, you know, being in an environment where you don't necessarily are intimidated by it, but you're already there before you end up being admitted to hospital. Let's talk about this before it becomes anything worse. So good. That is actually that containment, I think, is one of the words that I use so very often because, mm. you know, it's so important to get that containment, you know, that containment in that calm space. And then what can what can we do from here? Yes. You know, what's the next steps? And that's that, you know, that valuable space in the middle where you actually have all of these branches for a mind map in my head. That's what I think about. But I'm very happy to share. So this is the the epitome of a talk that I would say would be like lead by example. And mm-hmm. and that's something that I think is so valuable because it's something that we say so easily, but isn't always, you know, like sort of personified. And this mm-hmm. whole conversation was exactly that. It's like that lead by example. SADAG has resources, has 24-hour helplines. So we have our Discovery Medical Students and Young Doctors helpline that uh, Dr. Yes. L will definitely share the number of. Um, we also have the Healthcare Workers Care Network that is open to all medical professionals across the mm-hmm. board, across the country. It's so important to know that these services are available. They're 24 hours. Yeah. We have counselors sitting on the other side that even if you don't want to share your name, are happy to speak to you, to have these conversations so that you feel heard. So you feel like you, you, you know, you heard and you, you can be contained and just give you that few self-help tips to be like, okay, have you eaten today? You know, have you slept well? What's going on with you? And just have those conversations. And I think that's very valuable because within this COVID space, it got exaggerated that we're not doing this. So those are the services from SADAG. We have very happy to help with all different interventions and to link you to referrals across the country as well. We have been around for quite a while and we will be around for very many more years. Absolutely. I think with the growing pandemic, it's not yet classified, but I mean, we know it's true of mental health. They definitely will never stop being a need to have these conversations. And yes, just as more resources, I just want to touch first on the one that Dr. Ngobo spoke on, which is Lifeline Counseling. They also are a national hotline where you can get counseling. And best of all, is you can also have it in any of the official 11 languages. So uh, for those of you who know of people who may not be able to express themselves in English, please know that there are also resources available out there for you to speak in your home language so that you can get the support that you need. And Lifeline offers counseling for a number of things, everything from gender-based violence to HIV, AIDS. And obviously these types of things affect people's mental health. And I work really closely on this project in my day-to-day job, and that's the Discovery Young Doctor or Doctor Mental Health Helpline. And it really is a 24-hour service that's provided by SADAG in partnership with Discovery just to support you in any crisis. You get counselors who assist with anything that's a mental health issue, anything from anxiety to trauma to substance abuse issues to specific diagnosis for conditions. And the number there is 0800-323-323. All of these, or at least the, the, the Young Doctor Mental Health Helpline is also easily accessible from the Wardworks app in their perk slot section. 
So you can dial in directly from there, or like I said, it's a really simple number, 0800-323-323. So we share these just to let you know that wherever you are in your wellness journey, in your journey of trying to cope, it's so important to get that support around you. Dr. Ngoba spoke about how, how we easily underestimate community. And this is a simple way to get yourself plugged in, not just to the people who have the intent to support and help you, but who also have the resources and the strategies to help you cope on a day-to-day. We studied the MBCHBC. We learned about the body, but it's time we take some time to learn about our minds and empower ourselves to cope better in our day-to-day. And these are just a few ways you can engage some resources to do that. So thank you all for sharing so intently. I really enjoyed the depth of conversation we had here, but I can't close any episode without asking you a closing question. I usually ask the question, how have you been kind to yourself? But I've been so moved by the thoughts around coping and how it's robbed us of joy that I'd like you to answer the question, how are you preserving your joy? Or how do you preserve your joy when you're struggling with your mental health? Can I go first then? <laughs> yes, you can, because I was about to say, can, silence can, is usually can Dr. Can Dr. Go, herself, go first, please? <laughs> um, I preserve my joy uh, or cope, uh, make sure I'm coping. I think first and foremost is being real about where I'm at. So self-awareness mm-hmm. and insight is so important. The second thing is to be, is to protect it, to prevent complications. So I, I identify things that make me happy or make preserve my mental uh, wellness and mental stability. One of them is journaling. Mm. I would like to do it more, <laughs> but I don't do it as much. Because we need I a know. book from you. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, yes definitely. Book. I do have a book. You do have a book. No, yeah, no, 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 no. That plug book. us, plug us, plug us. Yes, plug please. I do have a book. I want a book. We need a book. My book was released. It's actually the anniversary of the book on the 17th of October. So I wrote wow. that during my incapacity leave. Uh, wow. And it was therapeutic for me. It was cathartic for me. And wow. yeah, during the six months, I mean, you know how on the run we are with our profession. At times you don't get to do things that make you happy as much. So during my incapacity leave, I wanted my experience. I sort of wanted to be. Um, articulated in a way that can be heard by people who struggle with mental health issues and people who are caring for people who have mental health issues. So my book is called Reflections of a Convoluted Mind, A Journey with My Mental Illness by Dr. Samir Jane Momo. Um, it's found everywhere. It's at Take A Lot, Amazon.com, by Kindle. Come on. It's yes. an book. So there is a book out there. <laughs> and Madam We're getting Jane, ourselves a copy yeah, that's that's my weekend plan. Yeah, that's you get to read plan. about Madam J more in that chapter because I discuss each symptom and my experience of each symptom. And to continue now, myself, okay. <laughs> I love hiking. I love hiking. <laughs> I love waste of stairs. So I, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a gym junkie. I wouldn't put it that far. But I do know the things I enjoy. It, things that relate to community and connection. I know feed mm. my soul. So it could be a book club, it could be visiting with a friend, spending time to offload, debrief, not necessarily because there's a crisis, but because I value connection. And I engage with platforms that do do things related to connection. And also I love public speaking, as you may have picked up. So I love speaking. Yes, and, and you're great at it. Thank you so much. So that's me and my self-care journey. 
Wow. Love it. Thank you for those practical tools and just for, you know, ring fencing, noticing what makes us happy and repeating that's those activities so that even in the moments when we are deteriorating in our mental health, the good can stay good. Yes. V for you? I'm like, okay, there's a lot being done, clearly. So exactly, and I know I've said this before, it's having these conversations. It feeds mm, my yes. soul. It really, really does. It, it sort of encapsulates everything that I want to do for mental health and I want to have done and I want people to hear. So that for me is very valuable. I think my forte and the joy that I get every morning is when I can remake my checklist and I have a lot of things checked out and I'm good with that, especially now because mm. of the wedding. So that is my main joy at the moment. Yes. Those checklists and those yes. checklists being ticked off. That's it. <laughs> That's so powerful. Oh, <laughs> so good. We're so excited. Sorry, Dustin, but go ahead. Yes, we'd like to know what your joy keepers are as well. Yes, I was about to say the same thing. Thank you. Oh, my word. My joy keepers are definitely this. So this out, this creative outlet slash knowing that we're creating conversations that will serve people. I think telling my, similarly to Dr. Ngobo, telling my story and my wrestles with vulnerability, rest, definitely also give me joy. I love cooking, so anything to do with being in the kitchen and making people food or having food makes me excited. And then I'm I'm learning more and more. Like, you know, you do those personality tests in school and you get the classification of ENTJ or INTJ. For the longest time, I thought I was extroverted, but I think something happened to me in COVID. And I recently did the personality test and I was like, yeah, I, I really am starting to feel more introverted. So for me, the opportunity to full from within that looks like solitude lots and lots of solitude i really fill up deeply from moments of personal reflection introspection and hearing a good episode of a good podcast never ceases to give me joy so those are the few things that that keep me going Wow, that's so cool. You know, I didn't realize how much of a podcast and super soul Sunday junkie I was. When you mentioned all these people, I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> really? I'm like, oh, I'm it's, a pro- it's a problem because I started with podcasts because of Dr. L and now I'm just so like all over the place <laughs> with podcasts. Where did the music go? It's gone. <laughs> it's Literally, gone. It's gone. It's valuable information it's also- is important. <laughs> it is and it helps you I guess it in this especially in this time where community is scarce for a number of reasons it's really really valuable to connect on platforms where you at least get the energy of being around people who validate your experiences yes. your vulnerability your insecurities your fears but also empower you to move forward in a different way and I hope that this episode did that for anybody who's listening Oh, wow. Definitely. You know, the writer just in closing on my part is that, that part, all those things you're saying now is that there's so much uh, power in alignment. This yeah. all speaks to alignment as well, that, you know, connecting in spaces that are aligned with your soul, aligned with people that, you know, share the same value system as you. So powerful, so true. So powerful. Thank you both so much. Can't wait to do the next episode next week. Hope you guys keep well and don't forget to join us next week. Thank you for joining. Bye. Bye. Bye.